You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Members of the church are all those who are true believers. It's not a building. It's not some uh, elite group of society. It's the believers and the children of God by God's grace through faith. So we have to understand when God gives us instruction, it's sometimes difficult to understand, as Peter has reminded us. Some of the things that Paul writes are very hard to understand. Some of these truths seem foreign to our thinking. But Paul wrote something very interesting to the Colossians. And I just want to read it to you. But before we begin, I want to open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for just the privilege of coming together as your children, as the body of Christ, as the church. And Father, we look to you for our understanding, and we look to you for your sovereign grace to apply these truths to our lives. I just thank you now and pray that you guide us and instruct us as we look into your word. We just praise you and thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul says this in Colossians 2. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. 2.8. Beware lest any cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We have to understand that warning is that we don't try to integrate philosophy. We don't try to integrate psychology. We don't try to integrate our own thinking with the word of God. God's ways are higher than ours. And we have to understand that his word was given to us divinely for his people, and we can grow from it, we can practice it, and we can honor God with it, or we can disobey it and turn from it, and there'll be consequences. So as we were looking at different passages and different texts, there's a couple that I'll review here that tell us that we have to deal in certain ways And this pertains to all relationships for those who are believers. And when you're dealing with unbelievers, like many of us do daily, we have unbelievers that are in the workforce, students. You have unbelievers that are you're surrounded by in school. Uh, Those of you that are homeschooled still have friendships with individuals that may not know the Lord or maybe members of the extended family or family that don't know the Lord. So these principles apply in all areas of life. Let's consider a few of them. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, 
Take special note of that man. Do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, that's pretty clear. Uh, we'd have to look at the book of Thessalonians to see what he was talking about. But he wrote two letters to the Thessalonians. This was in Second Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. Thessalonians, was that considered a wayward church? Any of you that are students of Scripture? Was it lukewarm? No, actually it wasn't. It was an exemplary church. Paul commended them for their love for one another and he encouraged them to grow even more. But there were some in the church who were wanting to know, well, if the Lord's going to return, when's he going to return? So Paul gives some uh, teachings, uh, eschatological teachings as to when the Lord's going to return and tells them to continue and working and continue living for the Lord. So some of them were kind of sitting back and going, well, if he's going to return, you know, and so they were becoming irresponsible with their regular everyday responsibilities. So there were some things that Paul addressed in there. But his admonition here in Second Thessalonians was that if anyone doesn't obey our instruction, which was this letter, which was became scripture, then he said, To not associate with them. Pull away from them. Well, does that just mean uh, you see somebody that's sinning? You all of a sudden look at them and go, huh, I'm not going to stick around this individual. Well, that's what we're looking at. When do we pull away and what is the process and why do we do this process? In Romans 16 Verse 17, he said to the church of Rome, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned and turn away from them. Both of these admonitions are pulling away from those Christians or those professing Christians that are disobedient. Now, that isn't talking about a one-time incident. That's talking about repetitive lifestyle of unrepentant sin. If it was one incident, none of us could talk to any of us. I mean, we sin daily, and we have to continually go before the throne of God. So we're all still living in this flesh. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said what he did in Romans 7. Things I want to do, I find that I can't do. Things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Oh, what a wretched man who can deliver me from this flesh. So he was talking about his sinfulness, that is his flesh, that he still dwells in. So we're all subject to that. We've looked at that in great detail. Those of you who are in the Romans class, which we're going to pick up here when we finish this little study. So... Paul was just given an admonition there, but not talking about 
one-time sin or occasional sin. He's talking about a besetting sin in which an individual is disobedient to the word of God. That's what he's talking about. But there's a process. He doesn't give that in either of these texts of how we respond to those individuals. Paul, again, in Titus, says this. Reject a device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Pretty strong, pretty explicit. And from a worldly viewpoint, what does that do to the philosophy of tolerance? Is that being tolerant? Well, tolerance is such a heinous philosophy that I don't even want to delve into it right now. But I'm saying that the world thinking creeps into our thinking if we're not focused in understanding God's word. We're to be long-suffering, patient, forgiving, and loving. But God doesn't tolerate sin, and neither should we in our own lives or the lives of those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should help those that have gotten into a snare. Now, we looked at Galatians 6. If anyone is caught in a trespass, sin. You who are spiritual... Go to such a one in the spirit of gentleness and meekness, looking unto yourselves, lest you too stumble. So the attitude and the exhortation to reach out to such a one is given clearly in Galatians 6. It's something that we can understand that it is an act of love to do so. If we just close our eyes and go, you know, I can't really do that. That's not my responsibility. We're neglecting a very strong teaching in Scripture. And we're allowing sin to be permeated. Paul warns uh, Timothy, or actually the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5 when he was rebuking them and talking about that man who was living in sin, uh, he turned him over to Satan. And then he says, Know you not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? That is, you know, I gave the illustration last week when they made bread, they took a small piece of it that had the yeast in it. They would knead it into another loaf and it would help when it, the bread rise, when um, it would permeate the whole loaf. Paul likened that to sin in the church that isn't addressed. If we don't address it, everyone's affected. We're all permeated by that. It hurts us. And it, worst of all, it blasphemes the name of our Lord. So God wants us to purify ourselves, that is, through confession of our sin. He wants us to help those that are in a snare. Bear one another's burdens. That's in the context of Galatians 6. That is, when a person is burdened down and caught in a snare, if we can help them 
in the process of restoration doesn't stop there. We continue to help them bear that burden. Pray for them. Come alongside them. Encourage them in the word. Give them teaching. Give them help when they have struggles. We don't just try to correct somebody. It isn't just going and reproving somebody. It's trying to come alongside as we love the individual and care enough about that individual to help them in the restoration process. Jesus gave similar instruction. He said he refuses to listen to them, talking about the process, uh, one going to the individual privately, and then if he doesn't hear, two or three, and then telling it to church so they can also reach out to the individual. Then he goes on to say if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So we're going to look at this in more depth to try to get a greater understanding uh, as to what this means and how, what attitude we should have in this relationship of restoration. If we don't understand this, then we're not going to be able to help anyone that's in a snare. The problem is with this doctrine, it's been so much tainted, so greatly tainted, and so wrongly practiced that people are repulsed even to mention it because they don't understand. Who was it that gave this instruction? It was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He desires for us to help somebody that's in a snare. That's a pure act of love. It has nothing to do with disdain. It's not a call for condemning the individual. We recognize, but by the grace of God, what? There go I. None of us are above sinning. It's when we see somebody in sin that we have enough compassion and enough love and are caring enough about that brother or sister to reach out to help restore them. And if we don't understand this imperative, we don't understand the attitude behind it, then you can do great destruction. Unfortunately, that's happened greatly across universally the body of Christ. People that try to carry something out in the flesh, when they get to this third step, if it has to go that far, or the fourth step, people look at it like, oh, they're getting their due, just due now. If that's the attitude, then they're in sin. We should have an attitude of sorrow when somebody is actually caught. Caught is like a trap. The term was used that Paul used is like uh, any any trapper knows that a steel trap, when it in, catches an animal, they can't get out of it, not by themselves. Or a fish that's hooked can rarely get out of it if it's got a barb. That's the picture that Paul is using. They're caught in a trespass. When we sin... And don't repent. Think about the process. We lose all discernment. We don't have any discretion. 
we rebel against those that are trying to help us? Do you realize all the things that happen? We don't have a clear understanding of just how heinous sin is. It darkens the eyes of our understanding. And when someone's in a snare, we if we look down our nose and say, well, I'm glad I'm not that sinning like that individual, we're no different than that Pharisee. We have to understand that somebody in a snare has to be delivered. Now, it's God that gives the repentance, but he uses his people because he gives us replete instruction on that. He wants God's people to understand how to love these other individuals. Forgive others as Christ also has forgiven you. Ephesians, Colossians. We have to understand that that's the basic understanding of our faith. We've been forgiven much, and we should forgive others much. There's a difference and a distinction between forgiving and condoning. We don't condone somebody's sin. We don't try to justify and say, oh, well, you know, a little slip. No, we address sin as sin. But we understand we have to separate that person from their sin. If we don't do that, we don't forgive from the heart. If you merge those two together, you're going to have an attitude of bitterness. Carol. Okay, so um, <clears throat> what sin are you talking about? Are you talking God's idea of sin totally separate from what our idea of you know, as far as that goes. Mm-hmm. You know, some people think that harshness to your children is necessary because they're training. Well, some people think too much harshness is sin or, you know, uh, being privileged with your money or, you know, so what sin are you talking about? Okay. Uh, that's a good question. It's a, uh, we, need to understand that when we reach a point where we have to actually go to somebody, it's a significant sin. It's not just a difference of philosophy. I mean, there's a difference between beating a child and training up a child with corporal punishment and love. And there's a difference between being frugal and being uh, selfish and, and covetous and we have to make that distinction. So when we talk about a besetting sin that's of the nature to where it's hurting that individual in their walk with Jesus Christ, and it's hurting others, that's what we're talking about. And it can come in various forms. I mean, look at uh, Paul says to the Galatians. I'll just read it to you so you don't have to turn there. But... Uh, Okay. Uh, works of the flesh are evident. They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresy, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand and told you in times past, those who practice, that is, ongoing practice those things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. 
But look what he puts in the same categories. Jealousy, murder, adultery, drunkenness. I mean, we look at that and go, well, there's really no comparison with those. In God's eyes, he hates sin. Now, God's word does reveal that certain sins are treated in a different way. Sins of immorality. God speaks specifically to that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 6, Hebrews 13. He deals with that himself. And when Paul talks about God will judge you in such cases, that's what he's talking about in that particular. Yes, can you um, expound on uh, sense of immorality to me? I mean, I have a pretty good clue, but aren't all sins immoral? Okay, um, that's a good question. Uh, yes, all sins are immoral. When I talk about sexual immorality, okay, that's what Paul's speaking of in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting with verse 3. So uh, sexual immorality God deals with very specifically, and uh, that comes in many forms. It can come in our thoughts. Come in what you watch, what you read, can come in relationships, betrayal of a relationship, compromise of relationship, all those forms. So uh, that's what I was referring to. So Paul gives us instruction here of, you know, we have to help somebody that's in this kind of a snare. Now, uh, I want to address something that we kind of touched on last week, uh, a good question was posed. What about a family relationship when somebody is disobedient? How do we approach that? You know, there's no pat answers for every situation. We have to discern what is going on with an individual. And we prayerfully approach that individual with, hopefully, God's wisdom to be able to bring correction and reproof and instruction. We just don't go hammer somebody and start thumping them on, you know, with Bible verses, but bring forth truth and love. We have to understand that the only thing is going to bring somebody to the knowledge of their sin is the clarity of that from God's word. So as we bring forth truth and love for correction, and they reject it, first step, Matthew 18, you go to them privately. If they reject that, don't give up. They may be so much, there's so much uh, conviction that they hate what they're doing. Or if they say, you know, I don't really care. I know what I'm doing. I'm enjoying what I'm doing then we have to realize that is refusing to hear. When they come to that place where we try to help an individual, brother or sister, and they say, I don't really care. You give them truth and say, wait a minute, you're in sin. You've violated the word of God. You're, you've professed to be a child of God. Yeah? I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Okay. Is that really hearing the individual? No, it's not. They have rejected 
that outreach to restore them. So then it goes to, we don't just give up on them. We pray and we pray for that individual. See, the whole goal is not to try to point out how bad they are. They already know that. The goal is not to shun them. The goal is not to be able to carry out some kind of a a harsh disciplinary measure so that they'll feel bad without repentance. The whole goal is to restore an individual. And when we get to that restoration process and the person does turn from their sin, uh, we should embrace them. And, oh, yeah, they have to have evidence of repentance. I mean, we don't. We have to exercise some discernment here. But the whole goal is to see them turn back to the Lord. Our concern is about a person's spiritual condition. These are eternal things. It's not just, oh, (laughs) they're kind of living this way. They're just sowing their oats. No. That's what Satan wants us to think. Oh, let it go. It's no big deal. It is a big deal. If it's serious enough to affect their relationship with God and they reject truth, we have to have enough love for them to be able to go to them. So then, after step one, they don't hear you. So what do you do? You take two or three and go to them. Now, who are these two or three? Uh, let's see. I'll just I'll go through the directory and say, okay, put my hand on these people and pray. Okay, I know this has got to be it. One here, one here. Okay, I call them up. Um, no, you want somebody who is mature is living for the Lord, who has the understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it, and has the ability to discern from God's word. Because what are they going to do when you take them? You're going to go to a situation in which could be hostile. I mean, you're talking about an individual who is in sin, doesn't really want to talk to you, and now you're taking two with you, possibly. They have to be able to go in love, trusting that this is what God wants. What's their purpose? Restoration. Why are there two witnesses there? Establish every word. Confirmation. They're there to discern and listen as the first individual who has made that confrontation goes back and tries to bring clarity in this situation, they're there to discern. What if that first individual was way off, sensitive, just was offended, really didn't understand what was going on, and that person really wasn't in the sin he thought he was, and he got upset with them, said, you know what, you don't know what you're talking about, and told them to leave. And this guy said, okay. So he goes out and gets two more, brings them back, and these two witnesses go, wait a minute. What did you say here? I said that, you know, I tried to explain to this man that I really didn't do what he thought I did, and he insisted that I did, and he said if I don't listen to him, he's going to bring someone else over here. Really? So you may determine on that second step 
that that wasn't even necessary. This first individual perhaps was the one that was in sin. That happens sometimes. Or they can see and verify and bear witness to the individual is rejecting truth. He will not hear. I don't care. You can bring everyone over here. I don't care. I don't even want to talk to you. Okay? That's a pretty clear message. It's not always that clear. But sometimes it is. Ron. Oh, okay. All right. So we have to understand that this process, God's wisdom, is supreme. He has a reason for doing it in this manner. So when Paul tells the Thessalonians, uh, you know, don't associate with somebody who doesn't obey this instruction in this letter. And then in Romans, uh, keep your eye on those that cause dissensions and turn away from them. He's not just talking a one-time thing. He's talking about repetitive, and he's talking about the process being carried out in accordance with God's word and in accordance with the various instruction was given, not only in Matthew 18, but Galatians 6 and the other passages that pertain to restoring somebody. Everything comes back to restoration. So when we look at this from our human understanding, we kind of go, I don't know. You know, I thanks for asking, but, uh, you know, you go ahead. I'll... Uh, I'll pray for you, brother. No, if if we are qualified, if we're in a right relationship with the Lord and we're discerning and we're praying for this individual and we're asked to do so, really give it some serious prayer. If there's something in your life that would hinder you from being qualified, let that be known. But if somebody asks you, they're obviously not going to ask you unless they think that you're qualified. So, we have to understand this is a real important aspect of our relationships. Steve. Don't we believe that a person who continually practices sin um, and is unrepentant is not a believer? Okay, good question. I'm saying, what is there to restore? I mean, aren't we, it almost seems like really we're taking somebody who's not really a believer and putting them out. Okay. Um, so they say I love Jesus, but I also love my or yeah. whatever it right. may be. Excellent point. And that's why uh, Paul addressed that somewhat in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's look at it. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians 5. And the situation is... Uh, <clears throat> where this man who was having a, an affair or a relationship, immoral relationship with his stepmother. So Paul addressed them, um, starting with verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may have a new lump, since you are truly Unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover, and he goes there, but jump down to verse 9. 
I wrote you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or idolater or a reviler or drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So here, let's look at this. This person was a professing believer, Corinthians church. He's living in sexual immorality continually. Paul rebukes the church because they didn't do anything about it. He calls them arrogant. You're denying your responsibility. You're causing the whole church to be leavened by this sin. So the question, what is, how, if, if somebody's living like the world, why in the world would we even consider them a Christian? Well, from Scripture, we can tell from Galatians 5, the deeds of the flesh, which I just read a few minutes ago. And from this text, that any Christian is capable of these sins. Now, that question uh, also can be coming into the process here. Because we got to the second step. We've taken two or three witnesses. The person still rejects. I don't want to see you. I don't want to talk to you. You know, I've heard what you have to say. I'm going to live my life. Leave me alone. Then what do we do? Step three, we tell the church. This is what's transpired. A brother, one who professes Christ or has professed Christ, is living in this way. Do we know if he's a brother yet? No. But he's professed that. So we're carrying it out as if he is. We don't know that. We can't separate the wheat and the tares. Christ says you'll know them by their fruits. The fruits here are of the flesh. So what happens? You explain this to the body. This is in the local context, by the way. Local church. You don't go on the local Christian station and say, oh, by the way, we've got an announcement uh, no, this is handled with discretion. Also, if there's any kind of rumors or gossip, that's sin. So this is handled with the idea of restoration. This is handled with the idea that we love this individual. And this is a professing brother or sister, and we want to restore them. So that's step three. The church then reaches out, not just the one, not just two or three. Now the body is involved. What is their purpose? Reach out to that individual. You try to restore them. Katie and Thomas. Katie. Okay. Some can be blatant like that, and do we say, uh, well, okay, I guess I was mistaken. You know, you live this way for a while. 
as a Christian, you were participating in this, this and this. You made a profession. You were baptized on and on. But now you're saying you're going to what? So here, that could be actually in the third step where somebody says that. So then, that means he's not hearing. Christ says, if he still doesn't hear you, then let him be to you as a tax collector and a heathen. What does that mean? What that means is, at that point, he's not or she's not acknowledged all the admonitions, all the confrontations, has rejected that, and you treat them as an unbeliever. Let me finish this. So. Okay. How do we treat an unbeliever? Do we look down and disdain them? No. Christ himself showed us a preeminent example of how we treat them. We reach out to them in love. Now, we don't include them, uh, the word excommunication. It has to do with communion. We don't commune with them in worship. They have been put out of fellowship at this step four. So that is a formal action by a local church that has recognized this individual is sinning. We've gone through the steps that the Lord has given us. They have rejected all those that have reached out to them. They reject the truth. Now we treat them as an unbeliever. We reach out to them for what? For the purpose of salvation. Now we're, their soul is in jeopardy because they haven't demonstrated. They may have said just exactly what you just said, Katie. I don't care what you say. I'm going to live the life I'm living. I like my life now. I'd rather serve Satan than God. Well, that's a blasphemous statement, but if it got to that extreme, then you know what you're dealing with. You're dealing with an unregenerate individual. So the goal? Still reach out. And the goal is to bring them to the knowledge of salvation and repentance. I'll get back to yours, Thomas. I was just going to address a little bit, and first of all, like you said, restoration or salvation, one or the other, that's the goal. It doesn't change if we, we, I guess my question is this, and it's more to Keith, is that, do you think that Christians have gone through the entire process and have gone through the entire process, been excommunicated from their church, and are still Christian, and then repented later? I think that's entirely possible because we're. I think I'm fully capable of all of this as a sinner, as mm-hmm. an individual. Uh, I've had my mind changed in different ways from different philosophies and psychology and different stuff, and it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm fully. I can embrace a lot of bad stuff, and I can take it down a long road. And I just wonder if we're all capable of that. <coughs> if we are. Are we? Christian? And the answer is, yeah, I believe, I strongly believe I know I'm a Christian, but I'm, I'm still capable of that. Right. But if I, were, if I was the one talking to you, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't put my arm around you and say, well, hopefully I'll see you in heaven. Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And mm. you would continue to work on restoration. So yeah. Our behavior as Christians doesn't necessarily really change. Our motive is not to judge whether the Christians are 
Okay, the the point is well received here. We have to understand it doesn't matter if this is a professing believer but not a possessing believer, then the goal is still the same, repentance. Repentance. Because one has to come to repentance. That's a work of God. And actually we have an illustration of it in Second Corinthians. I'll I'll read it to you. Second Corinthians two. Starting with verse 3. And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those <clears throat> from whom I ought to have joy. Now, we have to understand something. Paul, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, referred to when I wrote you, that was another letter. It wasn't considered inspired. It may have been lost. But Paul wrote probably four letters to the Corinthians. Because here's another one he's referring to. The first Corinthians he referred to another letter. But here we have two inspired letters. Paul goes on to say, having confidence in all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of the heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not that should <clears throat> you should be grieved, but that you should know the love which I have for you abundantly. Now, some have said, well, you know what, this is that guy that was in 1 Corinthians 5, but the timing would make it not so. This is another incident. So a correct exegesis of this text, we have to understand historically, time-wise, chronologically, it's talking about a different incident. Different letter. Paul goes on to say this, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have so abundantly for you. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe, this punishment which was afflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man. Here is where the church carried out discipline on an individual who was in sin, ongoing, unrepentant sin, they carried out discipline. Paul says, it's enough. That's enough. Why? He goes on to say, this punishment which was afflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote, that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that, that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. So Paul was seeing the repentance in this man. They had brought the necessary reproof and correction to the point of this individual's restoration. And he's saying, that's all that's needed. Don't bring more sorrow upon this. Not more. He's already broken. He's already repented. 
Restore him, receive him, love him, embrace him, bring him back into the fold. So it could happen. Somebody could be so entrapped by their sin that they'd even say comments that like Katie said, well, you know, I don't care about this God. If they're that far into their sin where they could make such a comment, we would almost say that's impossible. This guy could not be a believer. That's blasphemous. We don't know. The only sign of true repentance is when they humble themselves, acknowledge God, and publicly profess that. So we have to look for genuine repentance. But when Paul saw that in this individual, he said, okay, the process worked. No more is necessary. And then he instruction, instructs them to love him, to bring him back. See, that's the goal of this whole process. We look at it in any other way, then we have a distorted view of this whole restoration process. Our goal is to see that individual turn from their sin and brought back into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. Now, Katie, did that, any of that, you have another question? Yeah. Uh, that's almost a contradictory of, uh, contradiction of terms. Can we speak harshly in love? I would say we should speak firmly and uh, hold fast to the truth. Harshness, if you define it in terms of harshness to me, would be defined in a way that you're showing disdain for the individual. Well, you got to understand that we're human. Our emotions are going to to come forth in these situations. We do want to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's a heinous situation. And it's so painful that her passion was trying to express that. She may have even thought, 
it be harsh, but she had enough concern and care for that girl to confront her with her sin. And that's the whole key here. We we don't want to go in a condemning way, but we can't sidestep loving confrontation. We can do that firmly. Paul rebuked Peter publicly because publicly he was sinning and, and being uh, hypocritical with his faith because he was treating the Jewish believers in a different way than the Gentile believers. So he he was compromising the understanding of grace and salvation. But as we look at a sin in an individual, we can't help but hate the sin. We should have a healthy hatred for it. And I get angry. I mean, at my own sin. And But when it's in somebody else and it's repetitive and it's besetting, it grieves me and it causes anger. But I've got to separate that anger from that individual. That individual is under the control of Satan. No, we're either under the control of the Holy Spirit or the enemy. Flesh or God's spirit. So we have to understand, in a situation like that, Katie, that was probably the most passionate way she could express it and yet still try to show this individual that she was in grievous sin just like she was grieved over. So uh, it's hard to make that distinction from knowing you weren't there, but... I would say because of her pain and her love for this friend, she was confronting her strongly and passionately. And uh, we just want to recognize that we're going to feel those kind of emotions, and especially when it's close. And so we got to guard ourselves against attacking the individual, but don't hold back from giving truth. Confrontation and love is always going to be hard. Yes, Jen. Um, I just wanted to say that sometimes even if I'm being loving and I'm right with God and I'm confronting someone who's in sin and I'm not harsh, that because of that person's guilt over their sin, they may be treated as harsh. Good point. Excellent. Did you all hear what Jen said? Uh, oftentimes, when we confront somebody that's in sin, we may do so in a very loving manner. And all of a sudden, we're in a confrontation with them. Why? Because they're in sin. They're guilty from their sin. And they're trying to defend their sin. So they go on the attack. Why are they attacking us? Because we're giving them truth. So that's an excellent point. We have to be on guard and recognize that we're going to be, we're in a warfare. When this happens, we're not dealing with flesh and blood here. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we're wrestling against principalities and powers of darkness. So when we have these conflicts with individuals, and especially when there's somebody in deep sin, unrepentant, you're going to have... Uh, battle on your hands. You're in the front line. So you're recognizing that this individual, 
whatever they're saying, they're not under the influence of God. They're under the, they're totally in the flesh and they're under the influence of Satan. So you can anticipate that and recognize that it's not personal. We have to separate that. They're not attacking you. They're not attacking me. They're attacking the very essence of truth. It's not flesh and blood here. If that individual was in the spirit, you would never have that attack. That individual is in the flesh. We can get in the flesh just like that. Did you say I was driving like that when I was coming to? <laughs> Yes, exactly. Steve. A good example is the individual, I forget his name, everybody will probably tell now. Um, the gentleman who went and spoke to David after he was in with Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. Nathan. Excellent. Uh, did you, <clears throat> Steve brought out a good parallel here. We have to remember King David sinned grievously. I mean, he was an adulterer. He took another man's wife. Uh, She conceived a child. Then he plotted to have her husband put in the front lines. No, before that, he tries to get him drunk and so that he would have a relationship with his wife and maybe wouldn't discover whose child it was. So he conceived this evil plot, and that didn't work. So he instructs his generals, put him out in the front line. Put him in the fiercest battle. So basically, he had him killed. Then he takes Bathsheba as his wife. Did he repent right away? No. But he penned a psalm that showed what was going on in his life. He said, I couldn't sleep at night. I would wake up in cold sweat. I thought I was going to die. I was in pain. What brought him to repentance was the story that Steve just brought out. Nathan just didn't go and said, you wicked king, you're God's anointed. And look what you did. You're an adulterer, you're a murderer, you're a deceiver. He didn't do that. He comes to him, gives him a parable and said, you know, there's a rich man and a poor man who had one lamb. Rich man wanted to have a feast and he decided he wanted that man's lamb and uh, that man would even feed the lamb at his table. And uh, he took that lamb and used it for a feast. I'm paraphrasing the story. David goes, he'll pay fourfold. That man is you. David, out of that, God brought deep conviction of his own sin recognizing, and then he goes on to say, would not God have given you everything if you would ask? You've caused his name to be blasphemed because of this, and he gave him all the consequences of his sin. David repented, and out of that we get Psalm 32, Psalm 51, Psalm 103, or whatever. He gives us the penitent Psalms because he was turned to God. Now let me ask this question, and this let's look at this in, in light of David. Was David a believer at the time he sinned with Bathsheba? 
Yes. Man after God's heart. What did he do? Has adultery, commits adultery, kills another man, takes the woman he had conceived, who conceived his child, brings her in, never and still tries to cover all that up. Would you think if you knew somebody who was attending a church, had adultery, then killed the guy's, the lady's husband, and then continued on as if nothing happened, would you consider them a believer? Uh, no way. I wouldn't treat him like one either. But that was King David, a man after God's heart. Scripture gives us understanding that, yes, we could be God's children, and yet we could sin heinously. It's so deceiving. The heart is so wicked and so deceitful that we're capable of anything outside of being in the spirit. That's not a license to do those things. Now, no, he was acting like an unregenerate sinner. Al said David was a believer, but he certainly wasn't behaving like one. And that's true. We've got to close now. I'm sorry we ran so long. A lot of you have children downstairs. So we're going to uh, there's I want to next week. I want to give you a little teaser here real quick. Next week. We're going to look at part of the text on this restoration process that is the most misapplied and most uninterpreted wrongly verse in Scripture. I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Father, we just thank you for this time. And Lord, we just praise you and thank you. And we just look forward to continuing our fellowship and praise and song and receiving of your word. We thank you and praise you and ask that you be glorified in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.